0: On this episode, I interviewed Jared Powell, who is a physiotherapist with special interest in shoulder injuries and shoulder pain. Uh, on this episode, we kind of separated shoulder injuries up into two different categories. First, talking about that non-traumatic shoulder injury, what people think of more as an overuse or a chronic type issue, um, seen in like a baseball player, swimmer, so on. Um, and so some of the points we got to talking about with that is Jared's different ways of kind of assessing it, his main points and main things he's trying to look at when someone comes in, an athlete comes in with this type of pain. Uh, we then moved on to kind of talking about does it does is it possible to know what the exact cause of is the cause of your shoulder pain anatomically, what structure it is, and then even if there isn't, you can get a better idea of it. Does he treat that any differently, um, or does he kind of cluster it together? I uh, touched on, you know, what is rotator cuff related shoulder pain. We talked a little bit about um, asymmetries, or um, does an issue really cause pain or not? Um, and then we did kind of talk about the management and different exercises he um, likes to use, uh, in this, in this sort of instance, we also touched on shoulder impingement and how he does not like that term and, um, kind of explains why, um, and the principles, uh, of, uh, how he kind of comes to this conclusion. Uh, we then talked ab- about more of your acute injuries. So this is going to be more of your dislocations, your label labral injuries, or your instabilities, and on this, Jared talked about the three different classifications of your more of your acute injuries. Uh, he talked about different ways to look at them, different things to manage them with, um, different return to play, return to performance sport, which he also did again with your um, the more chronic issues or the uh, non-traumatic issues. So just a pretty comprehensive um, episode on kind of the different injuries throughout sport uh, with shoulder pain um, and the up- most up-to-date evidence. So here it is welcome to no weak links with patrick wood the purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date evidence-based content and knowledge through your life experiences this podcast is perfect for athletes strength and conditioning coaches rehab professionals or anyone in the sports performance or sports medicine industry so please have a listen and i hope you enjoy Welcome to No Week Links, I'm your host Patrick Wood and today I have on Jared Powell who is a physiotherapist uh, who has a special interest in shoulders. So today we're going to talk about the um, main topic is just going to be shoulders. So really appreciate you being on. Jared, if you just first want to kind of give a background um, on kind of uh, your education, how you got into the shoulders and then we can kind of go from there. Thanks
1: Patrick, pleasure to be on. It's good to see uh, Bond University students doing really well so congratulations mate. Um, a bit, A bit about me... I am a physio. My background is in exercise science, and then I did a physiotherapy, doctor of physiotherapy degree at Bond University about ten years ago now. Um, And since then, I've worked primarily in private, well, completely in private practice over the last decade. I spent a little bit of time in the UK, where which was a which was a cool experience, not just professionally but personally as well. Good to travel around, and then came back to Australia and have started a PhD a couple of years ago um, in the area of shoulder pain uh, under Jeremy Lewis over in the UK, who should be well known to a lot of your listeners if they're physios in regards to shoulder research. And so so that's my history and sort of a normal week for me. At the moment, is a bit strange with coronavirus, but prior to coronavirus, it was working two or three days a week in private practice, doing a little bit of teaching and lecturing and doing a PhD and then also doing some online courses as well. So pretty busy schedule.
0: Yeah, definitely. A lot of different um, kind of experiences all in one there. Mm. Uh, I guess first we'll kind of talk about two, I kind of was going to separate up into two um, main differences with the shoulder um, injuries and kind of go from there. So I think first off we'll kind of talk to our, however you want to phrase it, with your non-traumatic chronic more type injuries and then we can kind of go to your more acute ones. Um, so I guess the first question is where in general, um, do you kind of start with more of that chronic non-acute type pain in your assessment? Um, is there any specific questions that you kind of think are, uh, really stand out or necessary to kind of get a uh, good idea of what's going on?
1: Yeah. So for non, non-traumatic, let's say shoulder pain and let's, let's define it or be more specific, let's say non-traumatic rotator cuff related shoulder pain or subacromial shoulder pain. Um, it's a tricky, it's not tricky condition, but it's very different to a traumatic presentation in that there are often lots of psychosocial factors which predominate that presentation versus a a nociceptive structural issue that you see, for example, a full thickness rotator cuff tear after falling over or something like that, which can be very painful and often will go on to need surgery. However, in a non-traumatic presentation, it's an insidious onset episode, often comes on a little bit later on in life, into middle age, unless they're a young person who develop a tendinopathy, if they're a throwing athlete or an overhead athlete, for example. Um, in any case, it's it's more so what we're looking for is, for me anyway, and what the literature tells us is that person's beliefs underpinning their condition. So, what do they think is going on in their shoulder? How are they appraising or assessing their own shoulder pain? Do they think it's torn? Do they think it's out of place? Do they think it's impinging? Do they think there's a bone spur? What has their mum and dad told them? What has their brother and sister? What's their neighbour told them? What has society told them? So firstly, we need to understand what that person's beliefs are about their shoulder pain. Because if they have a maladaptive belief, such as that their shoulder is out of place or there is an impingement going on in there, which... I don't really believe in, um, then I like to try and, and correct those, those maladaptive beliefs as best as I can. So, firstly, trying to figure out their, their beliefs underpinning their shoulder pain is absolutely paramount. And then, further to, to that, trying to figure out well, what do they think will happen perhaps if they use their arm? So, trying to figure out what they think the consequences are to using their arm and are they ultra vigilant or ultra afraid? Of, of using their shoulder? Is there this kinesiophobia present? Um, and then we need to figure out um, in terms of how long or how how they thought the pain arise. Do they think the pain arise due to something that they did specifically or did it come on uh, due to a, a number of different factors over time or do they think it's genetic or do they think there's something else going on there? So there's a, a bunch of different things that I like to, to ask the question on in terms of their beliefs about their shoulder pain because for me that sets up the prognosis what they believe um, really goes a long way in terms of dictating their outcome and if they have a really uh, pessimistic view for example on physiotherapy or non-surgical management they think they need an injection or they think they need surgery then that's actually really going to impact physiotherapy management so I'm repeating myself a little bit, but the first thing I really need to, to elucidate from a subjective or a patient interview is their beliefs about their shoulder.
0: Okay. It's, so, like, what, let's say, um, or I guess going back to the beliefs, would, have you gotten pretty good results, you know, from, let's say, more of, like, an athlete, of athletic population coming in, and they, if they are worried about their shoulder, or they do have these beliefs that are um, a little bit... Um, kind of higher or bigger than than the issue actually is have you found some pretty good results soon after just kind of calming them down getting them going into it um and then also kind of on top of that if um, they just still aren't believing you how do you kind of push that along or how do you get them to understand if they're kind of resistant to that
1: yeah so Oh, it's good and bad results, it's, uh, you definitely get some good ones and you definitely get some bad ones. I'm still trying to refine my education and it's different from person to person. Athletes are different again because they're in elite sport there is a huge fixation on quick fixes, on magic bullets, on gimmicks, on the latest fad and technology which can fix pain or can get someone back to sport at a high level quickly what they saw in the NBA, what they saw in the NFL or in the AFL or NRL here in Australia. So it's it's a tough market and they're often fed this narrative by other health practitioners to try and um, to get them to, to, to get on board with that particular treatment regime as well. So it can be really, really challenging. However, most athletes are quite intelligent. And if you sit down and try and reason with them and talk them through some of the evidence pertaining to, let's say subacromial impingement and the effectiveness in non-surgical management, for example, we can say, hey, look, we know that we have really good data that suggests that we can manage this condition with a good structured and long-term rehabilitation regime addressing some of your potential deficits, be it strength, be it mobility, be it psychosocial factors, be it lifestyle factors, be it sleep, what have you. so depending on the person, you, you really need to individualize your advice and education. And athletes, like anybody else, if they're if they're sold or if they're told a really good story that's based on evidence, um, then they're going to come around to your education pretty quickly, just like anybody else would.
0: Yeah, so definitely providing the evidence and kind of going from there, them yeah. you know, Something else to back it up on. Mm. Uh, I guess what so obviously a lot of times too, athletes are going to come in, um, and they're going to want an issue identified. This is causing the issue. This is wrong. Um, and for those issues that are the um, specific conditions that we talked about before with kind of that more insidious, um, uh, non-acute, that more chronic type pain. Um, how do you talk to them about that? Is it, and is it possible to identify the cause of your pain? Uh,
1: no, I don't think it is possible to identify a singular cause of pain ever pain is far too multidimensional, multifactorial. Uh, I see pain as, and I'm v- heavily influenced by Laura Mosley here, in that pain is effectively an implicit perception of threat to the bodily tissue. It's not. It's not a linear readout of sensory input coming from the peripheral tissue. That's just one factor that can influence pain. And it's not the point of this conversation, but there's a million other things that can influence pain as well. So So for me, I don't think we can really elucidate one particular structure or factor that is leading to somebody's pain. However, we can in our patient interview and our physical examination, we can certainly find some things that may be contributing to that person's pain experience. And it's always going to be individual and it's always going to be different. So for an athlete, we need to figure out, like strength is huge in an athlete. And we're talking about rotator cuff strength here, especially if they are, and I'm gonna talk in shoulders, it's usually relevant to swimmers and overhead athletes, for example, or throwing athletes. And we know that people who have rotator cuff weakness, especially into external rotation, may have a higher chance of injury down the line. So that's the first thing that we wanna look at. We also wanna look at if they're a thrower, what's their external rotation range of motion like? so that's from a purely physical perspective. We want to see how good their endurance strength is, not just their maximal voluntary contraction. How many? We want to see how many reps they can do and how their shoulder actually responds to load over a sustained period of time. And then we also need to look at all the obvious stuff in terms of beliefs and expectations. As I touched on before, we need to look at sleep and that's super important. We know that a lack of sleep is a huge risk factor for athletes developing pain. If you're, if you if you're not getting at least seven hours of sleep, I think you're like two to three times higher chance of getting an injury if you are an athlete. Um, you need to look at lifestyle factors. You need to look at psychosocial stuff in the house. What's the relationship like with the wife or the girlfriend or the partner at the time? All of these things can actually can sensitise a nervous system and lead to pain. In fact, now now I think about it, there's a, there's a paper that came out by I think his name was Stern in 2019 which looked at injuries in athletes and injury like anything else or injury like pain is, is a multi-dimensional non-linear experience. There can be many, many things that can contribute to an athlete getting injured at one particular time. So for example, that athlete may have been overloaded. So load, load is huge at the moment, right? Everybody knows about load and load management because Kawhi Leonard and LeBron James made it, made it famous. But it's not just all about load. Load is one factor that you need to kind of figure out. Then you also need to figure out how that athlete has perhaps been eating. Are there, if they're a collegiate athlete, what are they like? Are they under exams stress at the moment? Or are there any other stresses in their life which would lead their, their nervous system to be a little bit sensitive, which pain may manifest, may manifest from, even in the absence of a structural injury per se? So pain and injury are different. They don't always have to go hand in hand. You can have pain without an injury. Obviously, if you have an injury, it's probably going to hurt for a bit, but that's no nociceptive. But as healing time frame goes on, if that pain isn't abating, then something else is making that pain get stuck or persist. So a long answer to your question. I think there's a number of different things that can, can contribute to that person's pain. And there will never be one magic bullet that we can identify, in my opinion.
0: Okay, so when someone comes to you and says, you know, uh, I've been told previously or I think this is the case of bursitis or a tendon or this is weak or that's weak and so on, um, do, how do you kind of approach that? Just kind of the same, similar things you said and just kind of explaining it that, you know, the research and everything and it's just a yeah, sort of factorial I, thing of pain? I used to be really rigid and authoritative
1: on that and bring up research and say, well, why would you think that for? But now of trying to rethink my strategy there because it comes across as a little bit arrogant perhaps. And so you more just meet the person in the middle. Okay, well, well, why do you think it's your tendon? Why do you think it's bursitis? You know, so again, coming back to their beliefs, they've obviously got a narrative in their head somehow where they picked up that information from. And so if the, the information might be valid, right? They may have a bursitis or bursal thickening on an ultrasound scan. But I'm very quick to say that, that hey, that, that that bursal thickening is just one part of this. If we focus specifically on the bursal thickening, we're missing out on 20 other factors which may be contributing to your shoulder pain. And we know that people can have bursal thickening without pain and, and blah, 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 blah. So I, I, I meet the person in the middle. I, I really validate their experience because that's what it's all about. Fair enough. It's, it's really normal to be worried about bursal thickening or a tear or a tendinopathy on a scan. But focusing on that at the at the expense of everything else is uh, is probably not going to help them in the long term.
0: Okay, so yeah, and maybe a point kind of on that would you say treating them as relatively similar for all those issues um, similar ish. I mean, in the treatment in your treatment approach. Yeah,
1: it shouldn't shouldn't change management. So if we're coming into management conversation which I'll touch on briefly, then the structural or pathoanatomical finding that you see on a on an ultrasound or an MRI Really doesn't inform what you're going to do. You're trying to get that person back to activity, right? You're trying to get them back to function. You're not trying to, you're not trying to rectify a structural pathology. You're trying to get that person back to what they want to do. So that's a key point.
0: Mm-hmm. And then you. What would you so you wouldn't necessarily kind of go about with them there. but what about when someone does come in um, and the whole impingement theory and kind of your standpoint on that? do you explain that to them? or if even if not, would you mind sort of kind of explaining um, that now at the moment?
1: So I really do try and change the impingement narrative because for me, it sets up an unhealthy uh, belief or way of thinking in regards to shoulder pain and, and how that shoulder pain may be improved upon. So if you're thinking about impingement, right, you're thinking about friction, you're thinking about structures rubbing on each other. And so in order for pain to get better, then that, that therefore sets up that you need to rectify the friction or the impingement. So if you have a bone spur or a type 2 or a type 3 acromion, then that person automatically thinks that they need to shave the acromion in order to fix their shoulder pain. So they need surgery to manage their shoulder pain. And that's frankly false. We've got so much data that suggests that we can manage it without surgery. So for me, impingement in what it denotes or what it means, especially to patients, because patients are just looking for a way of, of, of making sense of their pain. And and cause and effect make sense. Okay, I've got I've I've got a beak to in or a hook to in. that's the cause. The effect is shoulder pain when that hits my, uh, when the tissues connect when I elevate my arm. So that's, that's, that's simple, that's part of the sense-making process, but it's often a little bit more complex than that. I usually don't bring up big studies or anything. I just say, well, impingement is being challenged. We know that non-surgical management is just as effective as surgical management. We know that a sort of three months of structured physical therapy using exercise therapy and progressive resistance exercise. We know that there is really good data that suggests you will have a pretty good outcome. So it's more just like challenging a little bit of it, not, not, not totally uh, sort of writing off their entire worldview.
0: Okay, but, um, but your main point you're trying to make there, as you're saying, is the fact that uh, to try to calm them down, that something isn't smashing against something else to cause pain, correct?
1: Yeah, exactly right. Well, even if it is, we know that, that it might just be short-term sensitivity and that doesn't mean you're going to have pain forever. Whenever anyone lifts their arm in the air... One out of every two people has subacromial impingement. So 50% of the world have impingement, right? But not everybody has pain. So that's something that I usually like to say. Sitting on a chair, we're impinging our hamstrings. Doesn't hurt all the time unless you've got a torn hamstring. Exact same thing with shoulder pain.
0: And we kind of, I kind of had this conversation last episode a little bit when we talked about scans but um, I know there's that study with the baseball players and the rotator cuff um, issues but do you maybe want to talk on that just a little bit of um, some specific uh, examples on athletes in the shoulders and how scans come back with this is the issue but they're not necessarily always as pain
1: yeah baseball is a good example There's, there's, there's a bunch of evidence out there now really good high quality data that suggests that A lot of these findings, these structural findings in baseball and throwing athletes particularly may be adaptive. They may be their body's biological way of adapting to repetitive loading through the shoulder. So it may in fact be advantageous somehow. We know there is a recent study coming out in baseball players, which suggests that a partial thickness tear of the rotator cuff does not cause pain and does not cause shoulder weakness. So a partial thickness tear in a baseball player, this is in professional players as well, does is irrelevant. It's not relevant for pain and it's not r- uh, relevant for strength as well. So if somebody comes to me and they're a baseball player or they're a throwing athlete and there's a partial thickness tear of the supraspinatus, I'll say, great, that's normal. You're a normal person. Congratulations. Let's move on. Let's try and look at how you're moving. Let's try and sh- look at some of your beliefs. Let's look at your strength. Let's look at your endurance strength. What's your plyometric strength, etc., etc. So... I guess fundamentally what I'm trying to say is the body will adapt to load that you place upon it. And if you're a throwing athlete, it's not, your shoulder's not going to be pristine. It's going to change in response to that load. It's the exact same thing with runners, with their, with their, with their tibia, they, they actually get a stronger and bigger tibia because of the load going through it. It's, it's the same in throwing athletes as well. Baseball players might get um, a humoral retro version as well, so they'll have significant external rotation that may be perceived to be a gird but in fact that is an advantageous response of their system so they can get their shoulder into a large degree of external rotation to help their throwing performance
0: yes it's more of an adaptation and it's like i said it's normal i guess building off of that so especially for either throwing athletes or overhead athletes swimmers so on just um using their shoulders uh a lot in their sports, they're obviously going to have either asymmetries if they're throwing, um, or they're just going to have, you know, really, I mean, like swimmers could have really lack shoulders or so on, just because how much they use them. Uh, I get, so what would you say, um, do you talk to them about that? If they think, oh, my shoulder's not normal because, you know, I'm supposed to have this range of motion or I'm supposed to, this is stronger. My right one's stronger than my left one. It's not causing pain. Is that an issue? And when do you correct or do you correct at all?
1: um, so symmetry, if we're talking right-to-left symmetry, it's normal to be asymmetrical totally. Um, so for swimmers, for example, when, if we're talking about elite sport, and this is, might be why it's a little bit different to just the normal 65-year-old man with shoulder pain, like they need a certain amount of range probably for performance. And so if they're struggling in range or strength, and I feel like for that person, it is con- maybe contributing not just to an injury risk, but to a reduction in their performance capacity, then I will try and, and correct it. So for performance, it might be a little bit different, but, but for pain, we're not sure whether we need to have, an, if there is an optimum way of moving, maybe except for rotator cuff strength and maybe for throwing athletes or volleyball players or overhead athletes, handball players, handball is big in Europe, maybe scapular dyskinesis may lead to um, some down-the-line concerns for, for the onset of shoulder pain. The question then becomes, if we find an impairment, a physical impairment, and we then apply an intervention to correct that physical impairment, do we correct the physical impairment? Does it actually change it? And it doesn't really, especially with scapular dyskinesis. We know that we can improve someone's pain, we can improve somebody's strength, we can improve their shoulder function, but their scapular dyskinesis may remain. So it's it's a little bit more nuanced than, okay, here's an impairment, here's an intervention to correct the impairment, the impairment is gone, and that athlete is pain-free and performing at optimum capacity again if we're talking about pain then we have to consider every aspect of that person's experience performance though it may be a little bit different and there may be some norms that we need to get to in terms of shoulder range and shoulder strength for that person to have a really good chance at at being an elite athlete
0: yeah so separating it more into performance and pain goals and then kind of going from there to identify it um with so let's say someone does come and has more of a pain or some sort of issue uh what is your kind of moving more into the management of, again, I know it's hard when it's not a specific athlete, but just some general kind of guidelines. Um, if it's more of the insidious onset, not really sure what it is, do you do you prescribe a short amount of rest at all or do you start progressively loading initially straight away, whatever they can do?
1: So I break it up into no matter who they are as a human being, it's irritable or a non-irritable presentation. So if it's an irritable presentation, meaning pain is easy to bring on and it's severe and it lasts for a while afterwards, then we're just, we're focusing on effectively getting that shoulder moving. Okay. And so that can be done in any possible way that you like. I don't care. I actually don't care if you do isometrics, isotonics. I don't care if you do stretching. I don't care if you do closed kinetic chain, open kinetic chain. I don't care if you even use manual therapy in that person. But for me, it's about encouraging movement of that shoulder trying to perhaps reduce some fear around their shoulder manage their pain and get that person healthily uh managing a little bit of load through their shoulder because we really have no evidence that one method of exercise is superior to another frankly there is no we don't we don't know if high intensity exercise is better than low intensity exercise high dose versus low dose Everybody in the world thinks high-dose exercise is the way to go. You've got to use strength and conditioning principles to help someone with pain. There's no evidence for that. So, so, so whatever suits that person at that time. So if they're irritable, they usually respond better, better to low load, more higher repetition type exercise. I will always go or mostly always go to an isotonic exercise to start with. I think isometrics are a little bit of a waste of time unless that person really cannot tolerate an isotonic exercise. And then once that person can do some good low-load resistance training in an isotonic movement, usually in a flexion plane of motion or a rotation plane, plane of motion, then I'll progressively, and it sounds really easy, once it's calmed down, you add more load and you do movements quicker. So you go from a really controlled exercise to really chaotic exercise Asking a lot more out of that whole shoulder system, right? So you're going from controlled isotonics, higher rep, lower load, to higher load, lower rep, ultimately ending at sort of plyometric or or contract-relax type exercise.
0: Okay, so if if you again, if you don't really know what the actual cause of it, is there is there a way to more determine that um, kind of like rotator cuff-related shoulder pain um, versus just like a, like a really specific tendinopathy type? pain or issue? Are you able to differentiate between that or would you treat that any differently in management wise?
1: So rotator cuff related shoulder pain encompasses every problem related to the rotator cuff. So tendinopathy, partial thickness tear, full thickness tear, usually a non-traumatic full thickness tear. A traumatic full thickness tear is a little bit different. Subacromial bursitis, all of that for me feeds into rotator cuff related shoulder pain or subacromial shoulder pain, which some people like to call it. Even AC joint, uh, uh, an, an insidious onset AC joint pathology, for me, I treat the exact same way as a rotator cuff presentation. The same thing with a degenerative labral tear, I would treat the exact same way. The only thing I treat differently is a stiff shoulder or an unstable shoulder or something that refers into the shoulder. So, for example, the neck or some sort of visceral pathology that refers to the shoulder as well. So for me, And I guess I'm coming across a little bit flippant there. So if somebody has a really severe tendinopathy in regards to their pain, they have a reactive tendinopathy, right? And you can trace it back to, well, this person just increased their workload by 50% last week. And so for me, that just feeds back in. That person's going to have an irritable shoulder. That person's going to be in a lot of pain. And so you're going to need to manage that load. You're going to need to perhaps like drop the load a little bit. Or even complete rest or two or three days of rest or some anti-inflammatories might help that shoulder and that person. And then you can gradually place more load on there through the shoulder again as well.
0: Yeah, so for that load management or just tests to return to sport or return to performance, do you have anything that – any specific goals you like – that's again it's going to depend on the injury and the athlete but do you have anything that you like to see that you're like okay you're probably looking pretty good now to start to go back
1: yeah yeah there's some research on this so like return to sport outcome measures for a shoulder um, i want him, i want them to have re- like pretty good strength relative to their other side and i know the other side's not perfect there are some normative values out there but i question those a little bit um so strength is, is important for me. I want that person to be strong. I, even if it's, there's not a lot of evidence for it, I think it makes sense to try and get that person as strong as you can. If they're a throwing athlete, I want them to have full and functional range of motion. That makes sense. Not just of their shoulder, but of their thoracic spine as well. Um, and, and as sort of the whole shoulder complex, they need to have full and pain-free or relatively pain-free range of motion. What's their, what's their endurance strength like? So not just, again, maximal velocity contraction. What's their endurance strength like as well? And if you're working with an athlete, athlete, hopefully you've got pain-free measures as well or pre-season measures that you can compare that person to over time. And then I really like to look at how that person's, person's shoulder functions plyometrically. How do they go with a drop catch? in one minute does their shoulder fatigue really quickly or can they do a minute quite easily can they do a push-up clap type exercise plyometric or can they absorb a lot of force through their shoulder and then release it back and forth like like what we do with an achilles tendon or a patella tendon with jumping type exercises so for me and then and that's not even touching the psychosocial stuff. So how does is that person feel confident to return? Yes or no? Don't just look at what they can do. Ask them how they bloody feel. That might be a good place to start. Are they confident? Are they not? We know we've got a lot of data in the ACL that suggests that even though that they might be pretty pretty good from physical functioning, their confidence is shot. And, and that's a huge risk factor for re-injury. The same thing with the shoulder for dislocations. We know that people can recover. They can have a stable shoulder, but they don't go back to a sport because to sport because they're not confident they're apprehensive that remains so you've got to look at the human being underlying all of these physical things that we love to measure as physiotherapists
0: <laughs> okay yes, yeah, so th- just those initial ones that you talked about and then making sure the psych- psychosocial as well comparing that mm. with the physical ones uh i guess we'll touch on um before we go into that acute stuff uh do you have i know there's like one exercise is not going to fix everything there's not one exercise, but do you have specific ones that you find beneficial that you like to that you like to use for um, these type of shoulder issues?
1: Absolutely, I'm biased towards a number of different exercises. Of course, we all are. There's, there definitely is not one exercise to bulletproof your shoulder for every single person, but um, we all have biases. I, I look, I, there's nothing wrong with an external rotation exercise for somebody who's got a weak rotator cuff. That's a fantastic exercise to do. We know that the rotator cuff actually works into flexion and extension as well. So a front raise or a scaption raise, there's a lot of good data on that, activating the rotator cuff as well. A scaption raise, in fact, is one of the highest exercises you can activate the supraspinatus with. Um, and lateral raise is a great one for co-contraction. You can get the posterior cuff and the, and the anterior cuff as well as the deltoid as well. So just keeping it super simple think about what the shoulder does. The, the shoulder pushes, it pulls, it lifts, it raises, and it carries, and it rotates. So if you train all of those movements, you're gonna to be touching all of, the, all of the shoulder structures. So, so for me, I'm, I'm firmly in the camp of training movements and not muscles. I don't give a damn about what muscle is working and when. I don't care about timing and activation. I, I honestly just care if that movement is strong, robust, and it can perform what that person needs to perform at a higher level if you're looking at an elite athlete. And so I take that athlete and then I reverse engineer, okay, this athlete needs to do this with their arm. What what rehabilitation regimen can I provide to that person to meet their demand? Simple.
0: And, and to... Uh, so an athlete again, I think a lot of misconceptions too is if they do all these different exercises, but they do it with, you know, again no, nothing wrong with the theraband as you said, but they do it with with the with the, with the same resistance, you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks, the same exercises. Um, do you maybe want to talk about a little bit of the importance of making sure you do increase that load and kind of change it up to to keep challenging and not just staying the same.
1: Yeah, totally. So it's just, I mean, I'm not an expert in strength and conditioning principles, but we know it's going to be, you've got to meet certain criteria in order to get somebody strong. And it's not just actually getting people strong. It's its this concept of mechanotransduction. You're trying to actually make all of that tissue. So we're talking ligament. We're talking uh, capsule. We're talking cartilage. We're talking muscle. We're talking tendon. We're talking everything. We're trying to get all of that tissue used to the load that that person needs to put through their shoulder during their sport. So, so for me, that is the absolute paramount feature. And so pro- progressive resistance exercise is a way of doing that. You keep challenging the system. You keep raising their capacity. You cre- keep raising their tolerance to loading. And, and, and again, you've got to, it's got to be different. Not everybody needs to, to lift heavy. Swimmers don't need to lift heavy. It's a total misconception. They need to have endurance strength. And so, so there's, a, there's, a, there's lots of different ways you need to look at it. I would definitely not treat a swimmer the same way I would treat a powerlifter. So you need to try and meet that person with what they, what they want, want to do. But progressive resistance exercise is important by for raising the capacity of that tissue in that person to complete the task they would like to complete.
0: Yeah, definitely. So individualizing, but still kind of doing that progressive overload principle. Yep. Um, I guess one one more topic on this kind of um, non-traumatic one. What's your uh, opinion on the importance of shoulder and thoracic mobility um, within kind of causing that pain issue? Is there anything that you, do you focus on that at all? Or is it again, just kind of dependent on, again, maybe not performance, but the pain issue?
1: Yeah. For me, I don't really look at thoracic mobility there's been one good really good systematic review I think by Barrett maybe in 2018 which suggests that thoracic posture is unrelated to shoulder pain but look if they've got a if they've got a huge reduction in their thoracic mobility and they they're, they're losing 30 degrees because they can't extend their thoracic spine maybe it's worth addressing can we actually change it maybe it's structural maybe it's genetic maybe this that's just the way they're built maybe we just have to maximize the movement that they can get so, uh, for me, it's not a huge part of my treatment algorithm or, or treatment approach. If it's massive and I feel like it's changeable, then I may address it, but it's, it's not a factor in pain. It's, it's, it's really not a factor in shoulder pain whatsoever. No. And most shoulder, mobility is, is, shoulder mobility is the same thing. Some, somebody, yeah. somebody who has no pain in their shoulder will basically have full range of motion. Okay, so the only thing that's really stopping, and this is just for a rotator cuff issue, the only thing stopping uh, full movement in a rotator cuff-related shoulder pain presentation is is pain. So a stiff shoulder is different altogether. Then we're looking at frozen shoulder, we're looking at osteoarthritis, we're looking at other factors. But stiffness in a rotator cuff-related shoulder pain is very is it shouldn't happen. In fact, if you're looking at a proper diagnostic criteria for rotator cuff-related shoulder pain, they need full passive range of motion.
0: Okay. So fixing the pain will fix the range of motion in that case. And that's the main focus. In a roundabout way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess, what would you say the, we'll kind of summarize this up. What would you say your main summary points that you'd want people to take away from that kind of rotator cuff related shoulder pain, um, non-traumatic shoulder pain would be?
1: So non-traumatic rotator cuff related shoulder pain is a multi-dimensional condition. It is associated with Strength is, is associated with bony anatomy, is associated with age, is it associated with uh, sex, so male or female gets different, is associated with lifestyle factors, genetic factors, it is associated with... Uh, sleep, it is associated with central sensitization, peripheral sensitization. I can keep going. It is a multi-dimensional condition. So you need to figure out, need to be a good clinician and talk to the person in front of you and figure out what that person, what their prime contributor is to their pain. If you think it's all about strength, you're failing your patient. That per- we, we know for a fact that the, that strength does not correlate to the severity of pain. So you could be the weakest person in the world, but you could have no pain. The strongest person in the world could have heaps of pain. Strength is just one factor. And that's, I think we've, we've missed the point with strength. We've, we've, we've gone way too far with strength and pain. Strength may be important for performance. But strength and pain is a tenuous relationship. Same with function as well. So even, even strength is not really a, an important finding or an important factor for function. So there's lots of different factors. You need to be a good clinician and you need to figure out the person in front of you, what they're mainly suffering from. Honestly, most people who come to me with, with a full thickness tear or a partial thickness tear of the rotator cuff, they just want to be reassured. They just want to be told that it's okay and they, they don't need to have surgery and that it's going to get better over time. They, they need permission to move and use their shoulder again. Sometimes it's as simple as that. Let's not overcomplicate it. We love to do that. But that's because we have this five-year degree and we want to use all of our knowledge, but sometimes we're overcooking it.
0: Definitely. Thanks for that. Uh, I guess moving on to kind of more of that a Q one, um, and I know there's obviously a lot of different injuries with it, but I guess kind of related to sport, more of that uh, labral instability, dislocation-type injury. Um, I guess the first question off that is, do you have an opinion on... Uh, indications or how you look at it if surgery is indicated or not for that type of um, patient and again let's say it's more of an athlete and different levels this is going to be different but um, do you have the kind of that line you draw with it?
1: There's no line though I have a framework that I use it's, it's heavily based on age so if the person is under 25 and they have a primary dislocation and they want to be competing high level in sport They're apprehensive, so they have a positive apprehension test. And so we're talking an anterior dislocation mainly here because that's 80% or 90% of dislocations. If they're apprehensive, even after a few months, and there's, there's also a bony Bankart lesion. So this is really important. If there's a glenoid fracture or they've lost the anterior inferior aspect of the glenoid, so a bony Bankart lesion, different to a labral Bankart lesion, then that person may be a candidate for early surgical intervention. So age, under 25, they want to compete in a high-level sport, or they do, they are apprehensive, they have a positive apprehension test, they have a bony cart lesion, and they want to get surgery, and you actually talk to them and ask them, and that is a that, that is basically what I base my my approach around, whether that person needs surgery or not. And so... And then you talk to the surgeon as well, and you, you, it's this multidisciplinary management You're trying to figure out what's the best course of action for this patient. So even if they do have surgery, let's, let's look at this. Like up to 20 or 30% of people who have shoulder surgery for a dislocation will re-dislocate their shoulder. It's not a miracle fix. So that, that number is still better than people who don't have surgery, I'll, I'll be honest there. It's like 40 to 50% re-dislocation rate on average. The, your, your age is very dependent on, on that. The younger you are, the more chance you will redislocate your shoulder and vice versa. But, but a surgery is not a panacea. So, somebody, do they, want to, do they want to be out of action for six months and pay $10,000 to have a surgery and they redislocate their shoulder a year later? Maybe they're willing to risk it and uh, having a non surgical approach and they're only 10, 20% more likely to redislocate their shoulder. So, you, clinical decision making comes down to Not just the evidence, but cost-effective and cost-benefit analyses as well.
0: Yeah, and then obviously either way, it's going to be a long and, you know, grueling rehab, I'm assuming, for both, either one of the options you choose.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's three, six, 12 months of committing to rehab.
0: What do you assess on um, someone to determine, I guess, or do you like this term or how do you look at it when a shoulder – you know, they they might have had some shoulder issue. Maybe it wasn't a big issue in the past, I and mean, they maybe play more of a contact-type sport or some sort of sport like that, um, and it is, I guess, quote-unquote, quote unstable. Um, how do you kind of determine that um, and do you, ways you look at it and ways you try to improve upon that?
1: So they have had a dislocation in the past? Is that what you're saying?
0: Uh, either yes or, I mean, maybe it's a minor one or something like that, but nothing. Like it's, it's never been like, oh, I need to go straight to surgery. So
1: yeah, so there's a the Stanmore classification which I use, which is which everyone should use. It's the traumatic sort of dislocation where there's a structural fault, and then you have an atraumatic instability, where where perhaps there's it may not even have come out. It may have subluxed, and there's not been a real severe trauma that has actually led to that that feeling of instability, that that perception of instability. We know a lot of athletes especially again, throwing athletes who get into external rotation a lot can develop some anterior laxity. The same thing with other athletes, like a lot of boxers can get posterior instability because they're getting into that flexion, internal rotation and adducted position. So this is what we call acquired instability or atraumatic acquired instability. And there may be the presence of some structural factors. Now it might be like collagenous extensibility or hypermobility. There may be a labral tear there as well. There may be a lack of proprioception or there may be some, some rotator cuff weakness. So we've got, the, we've got type one and type two. So type one is the traumatic structural. Type two is atraumatic structural. And type three is the sort of motor control, atraumatic non-structural camp. And then we're in this camp, where which is like maybe 5% of all shoulder instability presentations, more commonly occur in females, hypermobile people, usually you've got to, you've got to think about, do they have um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome here as well? Are they generally hypermobile everywhere? So you do your bait and score there. You try and figure out if they've got generalized hypermobility. And so that's your third classification, which you don't see a heap of sportsmen because often, so this is a genetic issue usually, right? So, so that will usually affect that person's sporting choice. Uh, or their participation in sport before they get the chance to be elite, unfortunately. However, type 2, so type 1 and type 2 are really common in elite sport. People, in terms of your management, probably both deserve a really good uh, period of non-surgical management. Most surgeons will say that as well, unless the criteria I've suggested a few minutes ago is met. Um, especially with the acquired or atraumatic instability you've really got to give that a concerted period of non-operative rehabilitation and so again, you're looking at the same things as you would with rotator cuff related shoulder pain well, what are the deficits is it proprioceptive is it just hyperflexibility uh, so on and so forth we're not going to get into it all but you kind of just instead of being fixated on a pathology you think about what's this person struggling with like is it a perception of instability, or are they actually dislocating the shoulder? Is there a frank weakness? What's their joint reposition sense like in terms of proprioceptive measures? Um, are they just hyper fearful for for no real reason? So these are the things that we need to figure out.
0: Yeah, and I guess so. What kind of going off of what we said beforehand? Would someone? So is it? Would it be? It could you say, relatively confidently, if someone didn't have that acute one they need the surgery and it's kind of in between of like oh you recommend they probably should try some sort of um, non-surgical management first uh, if they were to do that and it worked or they got out back onto the field or court wherever they're playing is that time frame going to be a lot quicker than if they were to go into surgery and then as you said beforehand that like the the dislocation rate's not a crazy amount different, so um Is that kind of why you usually recommend that non-surgical if it's not a major issue first?
1: Absolutely, and that's what the evidence says as well. The really good evidence, and we're talking high-level journals, suggests with that type 2, you've got to try a concerted period of non-surgical rehabilitation, not just because it's a quicker return to play, perhaps, but because it's the best and most common-sense approach. Because it's not obvious what you... The, surgery, the surgical fix is not obvious in the in the, the person with type 2 instability, right? Because what if it's just from loose tissues in the shoulder or a loose capsule or a, what they call a capsular insufficiency, that there's just a lot of room to move in the front of that capsule, like going in and, and tightening the capsule surgically or, or what they do, they, they heat it just to try and um, they heat the capsule to make it shrink a little bit it's a crappy surgery. It doesn't do very well. So, so, so non-surgical intervention is is definitely the key, the key management there. And it's the same with the type three as well. Non-surgical, sorry, surgical intervention, really not great outcomes. So we need to, we need to be better in terms of physios to try and help these people.
0: And when you talk about kind of that non-operative uh, and you said that, you know, obviously there's going to, you have to find what the main issue of what's causing that instability is and kind of build off of that. Do you have any, I guess, what are your, um, again, do you have general exercises that you like to prescribe to help work on that? Let's say if it actually is more of a structural thing, um, and then some exercises you like to prescribe or different things you like to do, if it's more of that hesitation in their mind or some sort of, um, s- scarcity of moving,
1: uh, so i'll start with the traumatic dislocation so let's just say that person has had no risk factors they're not hypermobile they're just a young person and they've been in a position that has overwhelmed the stability of the shoulder the shoulders come out i would treat that person really simply honestly because i know there's nothing underlying from a probably from a genetic standpoint or a structural standpoint um so I would just use classic strength and conditioning principles there, right? I'll get that person as strong as I possibly can. I would check in on apprehension. If their apprehension goes, great. Then we can just move ahead to getting that shoulder strong and robust in all ranges of motion relevant to that person. Um, if apprehension remains, we need to have another conversation about surgery. But for the for the type two and the type three, it's a I, I do have a little bit of a different approach. I usually incorporate a lot more closed kinetic chain activity because it's and this probably feeds into the fear of movement thing it feels like a safer movement nobody's ever dislocated their shoulder anteriorly in a closed kinetic chain position in the history of humanity i would say so, so that fear will automatically go away. So I do a lot of closed kinetic chain prep, uh, exercises. It can be a simple wall lean or a wall press up or a push up off the floor if they can tolerate it or wall slides or bear crawls. You can get as fancy as you want, but closed kinetic chain exercises are good for a, 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 a fear perspective. And also they're great for proprioception. They're great for co-contraction, activating a lot of muscles around the shoulder at the same time. So I, I tend to gravitate more towards closed kinetic chain exercises for type two and type three, sternal classification, shoulder instability exercises. Not always. I certainly do. We know that those people do have rotating cuff weakness. So to address rotating cuff weakness specifically, sometimes we have to use an open kinetic chain exercise. So I will figure out what's, what's relevant for that person. Sometimes it's a rotation. Sometimes it's a front raise, lateral raise, scaption raise, a pushing exercise, a pulling exercise, whatever the hell you want to do. Sometimes it's an upright row, sometimes it's with a kettlebell, sometimes with a dumbbell, sometimes a theraband. So you just got to figure out what you've got access to, what they've got access to at home as well, and then you try and come up with a bit of a plan. And then also in the type 2 and the type 3, we I all, always like to incorporate plyometric type exercise as well. Um, so we really try and we want to get that shoulder robust and strong um, in response to varying loads and repetitive loads that require a lot of action out of their shoulders as well. So with a type one, classic strength and conditioning principles in the absence of apprehension, if apprehension's there, we can have some other uh, conversations about surgery or, or even like, and here's Patrick, most exercises is actually a really good way of, of graded exposure or graded activity in trying to reduce fear anyway. So a classic external rotation going into an apprehensive position may not just be a way of getting someone stronger, but reducing their fear of movement as well. And so, so sometimes the two can double and there's an overlap as well. So for type one, classic strength and conditioning, type two and three, closed kinetic chain with some open kinetic chain with some plyometric stuff as well.
0: Okay. Um, kind of as we talked about beforehand too, do you have, I guess, general any outcome measures or ways you like to look at these to determine if, you know, they're more ready to try and go back? to sport and then this one might even be a lot more you know your mental kind of where they're at mentally with their injury as well
1: exact same so there's some work from margie old's uh which has looked at a return to play classification for shoulder instability and shoulder pain generally and it's the exact same things i talked about before it's it's strength it's mobility relevant mobility it's apprehension um it's plyometric strength it's endurance strength and it's how that person feels. It's their confidence level. Because remember, shoulder instability, this is a really key point. If we define instability, instability is not just actual instability. It's a perception of instability. So, so the perception of instability may remain even with the most stable shoulder in the world. And so we need to think about that as well. So same sort of thing. We're trying to to look at side-to-side differences or if they've done some preseason measurements, then we're trying to get that person back to as close as that as we can. Um, Some work by uh, Ben Ashworth called the Ash Test has looked at isometric strength in different ranges of motion. So lying in a prone position with your arm up in a classic sort of Y position and then doing an isometric test in that that position and then a, a T position as well. And and sort of looking at side to side differences, perhaps, or if you've done a pre-measure, like I said, trying to get that person back to as close as their pre-injury levels as possible. So there there's some things that we could look at in terms of return to sport. Again, it's going to be different for everybody and different for their sport. If they want to go back to sitting at a desk, I don't really look at outcomes.
0: Yeah, for for any, I guess within your experience with an athletes um do you have have you seen one as more of a common issue of the, as the main limiter to get back or the main thing you work on whether that be an actual structural thing or is it do you find it's more commonly of a mental issue of trying to get back or is it just a combination type
1: one type one is probably structural type two and three is less structural honestly most people really struggle with persistent instability of the shoulder with sort of closed kinetic chain stability so, there's something called the closed kinetic chain upper extremity test. Actually, I forgot. The closed kinetic chain upper extremity test, which is basically shoulder taps. So, getting in a push up position and doing shoulder taps from side to side. Um, I hope that makes sense to listeners. And you're trying to do, uh, I think, as many as you can in a minute. And then you compare that to what you could do pre injury levels. That's a really good way of measuring their single limb or single arm stability. And then there's the upper limb Y balance test, which is the same as the lower limb Y balance test, but you do it loading up one shoulder and, and then touching different points that you've marked out in the shape of a Y. So there, so I, I really often see people struggling with loading up that single arm in terms of loading up their entire body weight. And that represents to me a real lack of strength and stability of the shoulder that we need to address, perhaps with some close kinetic chain stability exercises. So for me, that's a prevailing feature that I seem to see in people with recurrent instability.
0: Okay, and you said that was for type one mainly. Correct. Type no, that's type two
1: and three. Type type, three, type one is more structural, more structural. so. That's more of a, a Bankart lesion or a Hill-Sachs lesion okay. or something like that.
0: Okay, awesome. I guess you, well, we'll just kind of summarize that um, if you want to just kind of give the main points of kind of the instability type that you want people to take away as well here.
1: So important to classify, is it traumatic or atraumatic? That is absolutely vital. Please, please, it should be so obvious. Did the person have a trauma or not? It takes one second to figure out. Is it their first dislocation or is it recurrent? That's a key point as well. You need to figure out how old they are. You need to figure out if you need to have imaging or not. Remember, males are far more likely to redislocate their shoulder versus females. So, uh, gender and sex comes into it again. Um, what are they doing for sport, etc., etc., etc.? So, you need to figure out their redislocation risk, um, and then in terms of management. We're just trying to get that person back to using their arm, right? And we're using tests, which we're trying to figure out strength, we're trying to figure out plyometric endurance strength, we're trying to figure out proprioceptive strength, we're trying to look at it, if there's any obvious structural things that we need to surgically think about. That's a brief synopsis of shoulder instability.
0: Perfect. Thank you very much for that. Thanks for being on. If you just want to um, shout out, um, kind of your, I know where, you, where people can follow you and get in contact with you if they have any questions or if they want to see you in the clinic or so on. Um, I can put all those in the show notes afterwards and link that to your accounts as well.
1: So you can get me on on Instagram, shoulder underscore physio. Pretty active on the old Instagram. It's a good, it's a good platform. Uh, I don't do Twitter much. Don't don't get me on Twitter. Uh, I have a Facebook group. The Shoulder Physiotherapy Group is like twelve thousand people in there. Um, my website's Jared, Physio, J-A-R-E-D physio.com. Uh And yeah, they're the best ways to get in touch. Don't send me an email because <laughs> I don't really reply. Um, set, get, get in touch with me on socials and then we can go from there.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you very much again, Jared, for being on. Really appreciate it. No worries, mate. Thank you. Thank you for listening to No Weak Links. If you've enjoyed the show and would be able to leave a five-star review on iTunes, that would be much appreciated as it would help the show reach more people. I also provide free strength and conditioning and injury and rehabilitation content on Instagram at Coach Patrick Wood, on Facebook at Coach Patrick Wood, on Twitter at Coach Patty Wood, and on my website www.patrick wood.com. All of this can be found in the show notes. Thank you for listening.